And please uh, pray with me. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, for the preaching of the Word, uh, but, but more, we, we actually ask for more than just, you know, a good sermon. We ask for the Spirit. Um, Lord, we ask that the Spirit would uh, apply the truth of this living Word to our hearts, Lord, to the end that we would uh, maybe come to know You for the first time, uh, trust in You more deeply. Lord, um, see the Gospel as relevant as beautiful, Lord, that we would apprehend its height, its width, its width, its depth, its, uh, Lord, its substance uh, in our lives in such a way that you would get glory, and Lord, that we would, um, we would love one another deeply from the heart, and that we would love our city as you've called us to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, many of you who are artists here will know this term, chiaroscuro. Sounds better when you say it with a little bit of an Italian inflection. It, it, it's, a, it's a word which uh, is Italian for light and dark. Uh, and it's descriptive of a way of, of painting or drawing to, to capture light on the canvas. But, but in this kind of curious way, um, by actually being very aggressive with the darkness, with the shading, uh, making the dark darker so that the light would be more luminous. Uh, it's a technique you see applied really brilliantly by, by artists like Caravaggio and Rembrandt, and I want to say by Mark. Since Jesus has come to Jerusalem, the narrative of this gospel has really been darkening. And, and, and to be fair, it you know, there have been shades of darkness throughout this gospel. Uh, Jesus has predicted his death already three times. Uh, the religious leaders have been scheming about how to destroy him since really the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, but now, you know, we're at a place where the schemes are, are gaining some substance, where, where the plots are, have become plans. And, and in very short order, uh, the chief priests and the scribes will have Jesus secretly arrested, have him killed, uh, and will we'll use even one of his own disciples, you know, pull this off. Uh, darkness, heavy darkness, um, but not without light. Because even as that plot is being put into motion, uh, we can see from this text another one is being carried out. Uh, and to see this, uh, we need to continue to keep the temple in mind. Uh, ever since entering the city, we've been, you know, uh, in, in these days since Jesus has entered um, Jerusalem, everything is centered around the temple, hasn't it? Temples loomed large, and, and I think vital to understanding, you know, why that is, we need to think of the temple as more than, you know, a, a, a beautiful piece of architecture, um, more than a, a piece of real estate, but, but to appreciate what I want to kind of call the temple reality that looms over everything. The, the temple as, as essentially ground zero for God's people, not just a, a geographical center, but an existential one, a, a spiritual center as well. And that temple reality has shaded and shaped everything from the moment Jesus passed through that ga gate, being hailed as uh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, there is a strong and undeniable connection between that place, the place of the temple, and this person, the person of Jesus. Because uh, that connection is undeniable and strong, 
between the place of the temple and the person of Jesus because Jesus makes the connection himself. But, but interestingly, not in a way anyone ever would have expected. We, we saw just before this, Jesus predicting that this temple, this great center of God's people would be destroyed. But the surprise is he speaks of that destruction not as a failure, but instead as a fulfillment. Uh, and the reason it's not a failure is because the essence of the temple promise that sinful people can have their sins fully and finally forgiven, that they can be reconciled to the living God, that they can dwell with Him as, as a free and forgiven people isn't, you know, that promise is not eradicated, it's expanded in ways that people never saw, expanded in the person and work of Jesus, fulfilled in Him. So even as he predicts this physical destruction, which is going to happen about 40 years from, from when he makes that prediction, he says that from its destruction will, you know, in a sense, emerge something even greater. So that as the temple comes down, the Son of Man will come with power and glory. So it's not that the temple is gone. It's that the truer and greater temple in the person of Jesus has come. This is very much what, what is at the center of our thoughts in Advent, by the way. You know, come thou long expected Jesus, right? And, and that's why Jesus never talks about the significance of the temple without also connecting it to who he is as Savior. He does this in John 2, right? We're right on the heels of clearing the temple of merchants and money changers. He's confronted by religious leaders who aren't just angry about what he's just done, but they're curious about what he's done, and they're savvy enough to know that, that his actions aren't just destructive, you know, but they're, they're, they're significant. And so they ask this question. They say, what sign do you show us uh, for doing these things? And Jesus tells them, he says, the sign is this, destroy this temple, and, and, I'll, and in three days I'll raise it up. And John significantly notes that the temple he was speaking of was his body. So, so we can never think of the temple in the same way because of the connection that Jesus makes to that temple. Because he is pointing to himself as the truer and greater temple. The temple is temporary. It's insufficient. It's hard to get to. It's, it provides you limited access to God and a temporal solution for your sins. But Jesus is eternal and satisfactory. You don't have to get to him. He has come to you. And he provides not merely access to God, but adoption into his family. And, and I get into all that because all those chickens are really coming home to roost as we look at this passage. We quickly find out that the destruction Jesus predicted for the temple will come, you know, 40 years on, but for him it will come in just a few days. And, and with that as the backdrop, we come to Mark 14 and in, in really three little vignettes, but, but three vignettes I want to say are all connected, and, and, and I want to take them together to see essentially three things. Two plots, two pourings, and two payments. Plots and pourings and payments. Now, it's just two days before the Passover, which is important to this account in more ways than one. For starters, it means that it was, it was an intense time. I mean, we've just come off of, you know, we're kind of in the thick of the holiday season. We've just come off of Thanksgiving. I don't know how your Thanksgiving was. Mine was a little intense. Maybe yours was too. Um, and, you know, with all these uh, holidays, we, we have associations. When I say Thanksgiving, 
everybody thinks about feasting, right? About food. Maybe today we're thinking about regrets about the feasting and the food. You know, when I say Christmas, what do we think? We think about presents, you know, typically. Um, if you were to say to a Jewish person, what do you associate with Passover, especially at this time, they would say freedom. Freedom. Passover was the time when the Jewish people would recount the story of their liberation from slavery out of Egypt, right? When God freed his people from slavery for obedience, taking them through the wilderness of the promised land. But at this particular moment in history and in this context, this wasn't you know, so much of a celebratory occasion as it was a deeply sensitive one. You know, I mean, it's a little hard to get our heads around it, but imagine celebrating your liberation as an oppressed and occupied people. It's bitter. You know, imagine the United States has been completely conquered and subdued by a foreign power so that we were all made second-class, you know, servant-class people in our own land, right? That would make the 4th of July picnic a little bit of a bummer, be a little weird, maybe a little bit explosive, so, so the celebration of the Passover in this context was very much like that. It was a bit of a powder keg, you know. Um, it was already, you know, um, a tenuous kind of thing. The city was said to swell to five times its population. Uh, that's challenging enough on its own. But, but because of this occupation and because of the nature of this um, occasion, you know, things would often blow up. You know, it wasn't unusual for rebellions and riots to break out around this time. In fact, it was the custom of the Roman governor to move uh, to Jerusalem from Caesarea, where he would normally be, uh, just so he could personally monitor and maintain control and, and be ready to crack down if there was a whiff of rebellion, right? So all this figures into why, you know, central to the plot of these religious leaders was not just to arrest Jesus, but to do it by stealth, uh, you know, to do it secretly, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Yeah, that's the plot. And at the very same time, it's clear that God has a plot. <laughs> um, that he's carrying out his plot. Uh, because the, the death on the cross that Jesus has been telling his disciples of for some time is about to come to pass during the feast of the Passover. Two plots. The Lord's plot comes into clear focus in this story, I think, of, uh, you know, having dinner at Simon the leper's house. Now, it's striking enough that Jesus is said to be dining at the home of a leper, but Mark doesn't really make a big deal about that. Apparently, this is so normal, you know, he doesn't really focus on that fact, but the focus here is almost entirely on someone else, this woman. Uh, we're never told her name, uh, but, but um, her presence and her actions uh, tell us a lot about her. First of all, um, it, uh, there's, there's scandal hanging over this whole episode. Um, you can see it just by what she does. First of all, she breaks a major social barrier by entering the room into the company of men. This is hard for us to get around, our heads around in an egalitarian society, but this was definitively not an egalitarian society. So by all indications, she just busts in uninvited, um, and it's clear that she's certainly unwelcome. And she has brought something with her. Uh, she has brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of nard with her. 
Now, nard is what we might call an essential oil. It's derived from a flowering plant in the honeysuckle family that grows in Nepal. And it was extremely, extremely expensive. So this woman busts, not only busts into this little confab, she busts this little flask open and pours it over Jesus' head. And, you know, clearly this is a woman with no concern for social convention, with reputation, or even consequences. And you can imagine, it's quite a scene. I mean, setting aside all the social barrier stuff, you know, how about a little respect for the upholstery? Right? But in all of this, the woman never says anything. Uh, and, you know, if she did, we don't know what, what she said. It is all expression. It is no words. It is a wordless act. We're never even told what the woman's motivations were. And yet, this is a situation where the actions speak louder than words. First, we know that what she did was extravagant, and that's an understatement. Extravagant in the extreme. Even before she does anything with this flask, Mark tells us this stuff was very, very expensive. And, and that fact is confirmed by the reaction from the people in the room, from the guys in the room who see, you know, you know, who, who, who uh, react to what to her pouring it out on Jesus' head. And we may not know exactly what the woman was thinking, but we're not left to guess what the disciples were thinking. They were scandalized by this. They were upset. They were indignant toward her. Not just because she busted into the meal, um, which certainly would have been perceived as undignified and unhinged and inappropriate, but the real outrage comes because of the expense of what she just poured out, which they saw as an incredible waste Again, Mark says they were indignant. That's putting it kind of lightly. The language here uh, in the Greek uh, is commonly associated with the snorting of horses. You know, <laughs> right? Now, with all that said, I, I, I still, you know, want to be slow for us to get on our moral high horse when we look at their reaction because it's not as if the disciples didn't have a point. Maybe a very good point. You know, when Mark said this stuff is expensive, again, he meant really, really expensive, like the most expensivest stuff you could get your hands on. Uh, you know, in fact, the disciples, you know, do a little back of the napkin accounting and reckon that what she's just poured out on Jesus' head was worth 300 denarii. Okay, that means nothing to us, but I'll tell you <laughs> essentially what that means. This little vial was worth roughly the equivalent of a year's wages for the average laborer, a year. You know, so I just want you to imagine, you know, me walking up here this morning, right before the benediction, and taking out of a suitcase $40,000 and lighting it on fire. All for the love of Jesus. Now how do you feel about it? Maybe a little indignant, maybe a little horse snorty. You know, and I have no doubt that there would be a few folks in here who would do our own little back of the napkin accounting and go, you know what? There were about a million more practical things you could have done with that $40,000 than light it on fire for the love of Jesus. 
In, in fact, the disciples have some ideas of their own for better uses about what had just been poured out over Jesus' head. They said that it all could have been sold and given to the poor. That's a lot of meals. That's a lot of winter coats. That's a lot of housing. That's a lot of medical care. You name it. In fact, if we're really tracking with this and taking things seriously, you, you know, you'd almost have to be crazy not to take the disciples' side on this one because they seem to be the only ones in the room who know the value of a dollar. But then you have to ask the question, you know, do they? Do they really? Because what if, you know, and just humor me here, what if what the woman did is both extravagant and absolutely sensible. Both. What if the only sane person in the room is not these practical-minded, bean-counting disciples, but instead this mess of a woman? You know, to explore that question, you know, we need to pay attention to her actions, considering not just what she's doing to Jesus, but why she's doing it. And it's never spoken, but those witnessing this act understood, you know, in a very basic kind of way, what kind of act it is. I mean, she didn't walk in the room and throw the flask against the wall. She didn't pour it out on the floor. She didn't apply it to the lintel and the doorpost. She didn't pour it over Jesus' feet. She poured it over his head. And, and, and that means this application of oil to the head is a very specific act that carried a very special significance that meant this was an anointing, which, which makes what she did not just a random act of desperation, but instead a, an act of deep devotion, saying through her actions, in essence, all my loyalty and trust and hopes are laid upon you, my king. And, and in saying that, she's, she's in, you know, I think saying a lot, when you say Jesus is king, you're saying a lot. You're saying it doesn't matter who else is on the throne. It doesn't matter whatever power, other powers may hold sway. You're the king, you alone. This, incidentally, I, I make that, that kingly anointing connection because this is not at all unlike how David was designated as king of Israel being identified as king even before he took the throne so that when the prophet Samuel anointed him, it meant, you know, even though Saul had the power, his time was finished and his days were numbered. So in very much the same vein, the woman is recognizing Jesus as the one true king, the son of David who has come in the name of the Lord, his heir and Lord who reigns forever. So she's, she's doing more than just recognizing Jesus as king. I want to say she's revolting. She's saying in her actions that the present powers are in fact illegitimate and their days are numbered because my king is here. So this extravagant anointing is an extravagant adoration of Jesus. It is worship. It is glory, laud, and honor to the king, the Lord, the savior. It is sensible. It's the only thing you can do. It's the right thing to do. The woman is the only sensible person in the room. It turns out that the best accountants in the room aren't the disciples, it's the woman. You know, her calculations add up because of who he is, because he's the king. And, and their calculations are not only off, they are wildly off. Because the pouring out of the nard isn't a tragic waste, it is true 
worship. The woman is the only one who apprehends clearly the greatness of King Jesus, who sees, you know, in ways that, again, I think go unarticulated but are true, who has seen and maybe experienced his extravagant love for her. And as the one who has come to know that lavishness toward her, she responds in the only way that's appropriate, lavishly. Now we know that the disciples think about this, what the disciples think about this. We know what the woman thinks about this. Uh, But then the question is, what does Jesus think about this? What would Jesus do? Well, we know what he does. He honors it. He goes beyond honoring it. He actually loves it. He calls what she did for him a beautiful thing. And and he goes on to explain what's beautiful about it. He begins by addressing those practical concerns about how the money from the nard could have been put to better use. He explains there's something deserving of even greater consideration than helping the poor in this occasion, and that is his presence, which they won't have for very much longer. He even kind of compares his presence with the presence of the poor. He says that while you'll always have the poor with you, you'll, you won't always have me with you. Now, you know, I want to say this isn't an issue of picking one or the other, the caring, caring for the poor, loving Jesus, not at all, but, but it does speak to a priority. It, it, it is to say that there is nothing, nothing at all more important than having Jesus with you. That actually might shape how you care for the poor and how you relate to others. You will find no one who has a greater concern for the poor, their care, or generosity toward them than Jesus. And yet, you know, he places the greatest concern and value and priority not on that which is immediately sort of practical and doable and can be achieved by us, but instead on that which is eternally valuable and can only be received from him. What matters more than then what might be alleviated by us temporally and is that which can be received from him eternally. You know, among the first controversies in Jesus' ministry had to do with what, it, with what looked to religious leaders like messed up priorities, especially in what looked like a casual attitude toward keeping the Sabbath. And, and, and the religious leaders confront Jesus about it and he responds to their concerns by asking them, well, you know, should the, should the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There it is again, right? His presence. The supremacy of that. The priority of that. Should, if, the, if the bridegroom is with you, should you fast? In other words, you know, if you're at a wedding, should you act like it's a funeral? Fasting's appropriate if you've gathered to mourn the dearly departed, but, but it's not appropriate if you're cutting the wedding cake and about to hit the dance floor. It's It's unthinkable. And and downright wrong to act that way when King Jesus is is with them. They don't have to long for his presence anymore. He's right there. The presence of Jesus is a great gift. The fact of Emmanuel, God with us, is cause for celebration. It is definitely cause for extravagance. And that helps us, I think, understand the second part of his answer to them here when he says, you will not always have me. Jesus once again points to his impending death, and in doing so, he, he adds a kind of a surprising interpretation to the actions of the woman that not only was this a royal anointing, it was a burial anointing. 
Jesus' appointment with the cross is coming and very quickly. And when it comes, if you want to know where these protesting practical disciples are when Jesus will need to be buried, the answer is nowhere. They won't be there. After Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried by a stranger. He's hastily put in a borrowed tomb. There won't even be time for him to be anointed for his burial. And Jesus recognizes that what this woman is doing now for him is something that no one else will do for him when the time comes. But then the question is, you know, why did she do it? What moved her to to move toward him with such abandon? And again, we're never told. We can only say that in some way and at some time, she encountered in Jesus so great and lavish a love from him that it demanded this kind of great and lavish response. Because somehow, even before she did anything for Jesus, she saw, you know, maybe more clearly than anyone in this gospel, at least up to this point, saw the the fullness of what he was doing for her. That kind of extravagant love from him demanded an extravagant response of love from her. And that kind of love can't be monetized. It's incalculable. Because as as extravagant as what has been poured upon his head may be, there's an infinitely more extravagant pouring to come. And it is the pouring out that he will do, pouring himself out for the love of his people. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was on that cross that he fully poured himself out, poured out his blood, so that the stubborn stains of sin, which you and me could never scrub out, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many religious duties we perform to make it right, that those stains would be cleansed forever. It's interesting that Jesus says her act of devotion will always be remembered. And not because of what she did was so crazy, but because she understood a connection. Understanding that whatever we imagine we might give to, however generous we might think we can be toward him, even in devoting our whole life to him, he is always given infinitely more. That we're always in in, in the responsive posture toward him. So that whatever we may pour out is a drop compared to the oceans of grace he has poured out for us. She'll be remembered, memorialized, but notice the connection that Jesus makes. He he doesn't leave it as an act that will be just the stuff of memory. Instead, he says this act will be remembered and it will be mobilized into mission. So that he says what she did will be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. So that the connection Jesus is making there is is saying, you know, there's something about what she did for him in that room that will be done in myriad ways in countless acts of senseless, extravagant, accountant-upsetting acts of proclaiming the lavish love of Jesus around the world. Proclaiming that he's poured himself out for us in such a way that it demands a response so that whatever we pour out is sensible it's appropriate. The passage ends with Judas. 
with Judas going to the chief priest to hand Jesus over, it's worth noting that this is an act of betrayal for which Judas receives compensation. And that the dark dealings of Judas, I think, stand in stark contrast to the light of the woman's devotion in such a way that you can't really escape the juxtaposition of the two. You know, here's, here's Judas and here's the woman. Both, both the woman and Judas seize their opportunities. Judas doing so in an act of treachery that will never be forgotten and that produces death and misery. The woman doing so in an act of devotion that will never be forgotten and will animate mission. The disloyal act of Judas and the devoted act of the woman both turn on the making of a payment. Hers was a lavish payment in response to the even more lavish payment that Jesus has made for her. But what about Judas? Interestingly, like the woman, we never hear the words of Judas. We know what he did, but why he did it is never really explained. But my strong suspicion is that it was something like this, disappointment. You know, it hadn't been all that long since Jesus made this dramatic entry into the city, you know, one in which it looks like he, he might finally take the mantle of liberator and conqueror who'd boot the Romans out and take his rightful place in the temple. But instead, he clears the temple out. He talks about how it's going to be destroyed. He urges them to hope in his word that won't pass away even as everything else does. And, and I suspect this is not at all what Judas had in mind for the kind of savior he wanted. This, this, I imagine, for him is not the way it's supposed to be, that Jesus is not doing what he's supposed to do. He's not giving me, you know, all that I deserve and all that we deserve. And since Jesus isn't delivering for Judas, Judas decided he would deliver Jesus. Judas put Jesus in his debt because he'd not lived up to the expectations in making the life he imagined he deserved, but the woman understood herself to be in Jesus' debt because he exceeded all expectations in giving her a life that she knew not only she, could she didn't deserve, but could never attain. Judas hoped in a certain kind of savior, and since he felt he failed to deliver, he delivered him, got a little richer, and that destroyed everything, even himself. But the woman saw as we are you know, doing this Advent, saw that Jesus is the gift. Not hoping in an imagined Savior, but embracing the real one, and she gave everything which made her poorer in one sense, but infinitely richer in the only way that matters. Because she'd been set free by the one who poured himself out for her. And I don't know, you know, who or what you're pouring your life out for, I don't know what dreams or disappointments have been costing you. I don't know what you have paid or maybe are still paying in order to try to attain the life you dream of on the one hand or to atone for the life you regret on the other. All I can tell you is that Jesus has come and poured himself out. That, that life is available to you in the good news of Jesus Christ. Life abundant. So let's be mindful of that as we come to the table. Let's remember the good news of Jesus. Let's rely on him and relish the reality that he has in fact poured himself out and made payment for us that we might be saved and set free. Let me pray.
Uh, Lord, uh, you give us the gift of this table that we might gain that same apprehension of that woman that we remember today, as Jesus said we would. Um, remembering her for the connection that she made between the lavish love of Jesus and her own life. And so, Lord, it's, it's, it's of great significance that we come to this table uh, not making payment, but instead recognizing the greatness of the payment that has been made. Not pouring ourselves out, but coming to the table of the one who has poured himself out for us and for our salvation. Lord, this cup certainly represents that. You know, we, we remember that the cup of wrath that, that should have been ours, that we should have drunk down to the dregs. Jesus, you drank it for us so that we might drink this cup of life. Lord, that the, the, the bread of bitterness that we have made for ourselves, Lord, you ate that so that we might partake of you. And so, Lord, um, would you attend to us here? Would you bring a clarity of thought and a fullness of heart that we would come and eat and drink, remembering our Savior, partaking of this gospel together so that it would work its way into us in the most profound kind of visceral way so that we would know here today the extravagant love of Jesus for his people, to the glory of your name, to the good of your church. And Lord, would that pour out from here into the city and indeed the world. So attend to us here as we come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.